0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So now John chapter 15, we'll be reading the whole chapter in its entirety. I also want to ask, this is some of the most profound teaching that you can find in a chapter. And in my lack of experience, I want to ask you to inject your own sense of enthusiasm and attentiveness into a text that is deserving of such attentiveness and enthusiasm. And don't let its richness be lost on me, if you will join me in doing that. John chapter 15. that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you my friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command to you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world that the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, would you help us to hear these hard things? Would you help us to be softened to these hard things? Help us to begin to believe and submit to things we wouldn't we would otherwise not believe or submit to. Help us to tremble at your word and give us a desire to abide in you. Teach us what it means to be your children and your disciples. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. It's in your name that we pray and believe. Amen. Jesus begins to wrap up his farewell discourse with a highly relatable analogy that stretches our understanding of, our, of the intimacy of our relationship with Christ, what it means for us, what we are to do now, and what the result will be. I'll say that again because this will chart the course for this morning. Jesus begins to wrap up his farewell discourse with a highly relatable analogy that stretches our understanding of the intimacy of our relationship with us in Christ, what that means for us, what we are to do now, and what the result will be. So we have this picture of a vineyard, of the vine and the branches and bearing fruit, a vineyard. This is a highly relatable analogy for the people of this time. So Israel it was a very agricultural uh, culture, um, and, and setting in this time, and you could say it like this, that grapes are to the disciples of Jesus in this story as corn is to us, right? We're not all corn salesmen. We don't all grow corn, but we all know what corn is, and we're, it's very relatable. We understand it. So this is a very intimate and relatable analogy for the disciples at the time, so I want you to put yourself in that setting that this is not some distant, um, but this is a highly relatable Analogy. And this comes not just from Jesus' words and the, the culture of, of where they are in Israel at the time, but this comes even from the Old Testament. And so I want to look back to Isaiah chapter 5 where a picture of a vineyard verse comes up. Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 says, Let me sing for my beloved My song, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of its stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. This is the judgment what's to happen of the vineyard because of the wild grapes that it yielded. So we have this picture of Israel, God's people, as this vineyard that did not bear fruit, that did not obey God in this way, and this is what is to happen. And so, we read this analogy in John, and we see his picture that in contrast to Israel's failure, Jesus claims to be the true vine, capable of producing real fruit. God's original mandate, which is to be fruitful, multiply, and then Jesus even takes that further, make disciples of many nations, bearing fruit in that way. God's plan for the Israelites or the saints is fulfilled by and through Jesus. So why would God do this? Why would God set up a plan in which, in order to be obedient to God, we would need God also in order to be obedient? Well, this is because God is a highly relational God. He's not a distant, far-out God, but he is deeply relational and so when we look at this story, we see we see a plan, right? We see a structure. We start to see different components that work together, and we see um, w- almost what you could call like a, a business plan is how I look at this. In, in every good business pr- plan, you right you have a you have a goal. And so what what is the goal of this? The goal that we see in verse eight is to glorify God. It's gl- God's glory. What does verse eight say? Says. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so, so what's the method? What, how, do we, how do we glorify God? How does this happen? Fruit bearing. Fruit is the method. This is how we glorify God. We bear fruit. So what, what's the necessities? What do we need in order for this to happen? What are the necessities? The vine, which is Jesus. He says explicitly, I am the vine. This is what we need. What's, what's the expendables? What could be... Laid to waste, what what could be what could we go without and the and the plan would still be fulfilled? The branches. What are the branches? Us, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. We're all branches. Why is that good news? How could that be good that we're not needed? How could that be good that Jesus doesn't need us to fulfill his plan? Because we're wanted in this, we see that we're wanted I've spent so much of my life trying to belong to my surrounding by being needed by being handy, by being good at stuff, and so I've become handy with my with my hands and skilled at a few things because I want to belong in that way by being needed, but now that I've been married and have gone through seasons of being sick and being useless and being seen in my worst, most unhelpful state, and still being loved, I see. How much more beautiful and wonderful it is to be wanted than to be needed. It is good news to see that we are absolutely not needed because in that we discover that we are undeservingly wanted. And undeservingly wanted by whom it matters the most. So you might say, Jesus, stay away from me. I'm no good for you. I ruin everything I touch. I can't succeed. And he says, I know Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. So what does it mean to abide? Let's look at that. Pastor and teacher uh, and author, Tim Keller, says it this way, that the grace of God is something you grow in. Life is like an escalator going in the wrong direction. You're swimming upstream. So how do you work Against that, all of creation is in, a, in, is in a state of decay and going downward, abiding in Jesus is remaining in him, working against the flow of the world and towards, in pursuit of Jesus, following Jesus. So if you think about it, if you've ever tried to learn a language or maybe an instrument for the first time, what happens when you put down the books and the notebooks and the memorization and the flashcards, what happens in a matter of hours, days, weeks? You f- start to forget what you learned, right? It's a very difficult thing. And so the natural state of, of the world and, and what happens, it decays. It doesn't come together. It, it starts to fall apart. Similarly, abiding in Jesus, we do this by remaining in what do they say is the best way to learn a language right not in a high school classroom necessarily right what's the best way to learn a language you get an app on your phone no the best way to learn a language is immersion by immersion right so what does that mean how do we become immersed let's look at psalm chapter one which i think This example in John might be very well inspired by this psalm. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And then he paints a picture for what that looks like, delighting in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree in verse 3 planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So what does abiding look like? It looks like being immersed in the word of God. So you ask, how often should I pray? How often should I read God's word? We start to realize this is a a belief issue, right? When the, the structure of your or the, what actually happens when you say you want something or say you believe something. What you say, what you proclaim is, is different from what you actually do. And so your, your actions reveal what you actually believe. And so maybe on a, on a Sunday afternoon after the sermon, after the worship, or maybe after gospel community or after Bible study, you're saying, I need Jesus, I need time in the Word. I need to be regularly transparent with my church family. I need to pray for my enemies. I need to love someone gross or difficult. I need to pray more. I need to read my Bible more. But then during the week, what do your actions reveal what you need? What do you actually do in response to your belief? What what do your actions say you need? I need coffee. For me, I need Dr. Pepper. I just need to time to myself to figure out what I want to make myself feel better. I need to sleep in. I need to take a nap. I need to accomplish things. I need to make more money. I need to be dating. I need to be married. I need to spend less time with my spouse. I need to be independent. I need to feel good right now. Guys, this doesn't come naturally. This is an uphill battle that requires a transformed heart with transformed desires that can only come from Jesus. I'll say that again. This is an uphill battle that requires a transformed heart with transformed desires that can only come from Jesus. There's more on that later. See, the posture of a branch abiding in Jesus looks like we're on our hands and knees pleading with Jesus to give us the desire to abide in him, give us the desire to want him more, and Notice the contrast of that. What is the posture of the world? What is the posture of a wild grape, if you will? The posture of the world is I found myself, I found my calling, I have self confidence, and I express myself. Whereas the branch says, I am nothing with you, I am nothing with you, I can do nothing with you. And the good news on that is with Christ we can bear much fruit. So real quick I want to touch on this real quick. We have a bit of ground to cover this morning, but I want to touch on this real quick. The two responses. I don't want you to miss this. The two res- there's two everybody's a branch, okay? And there's Jesus says there's two responses. He said this right out of the gate in in chapter 15. There's two responses for a branch. One is or two results. One is they're removed if they're not bearing fruit and two is they're pruned. What does that mean? <laughs> That means you're either tending towards a state of of decay, of of death, or you're being pruned, you're being cleansed is a better translation of that word. You're being formed and made new by Christ. So think about that. Long for pruning, long for discipleship, long for cleansing, long for the, the, the hurt that comes with growth and maturity. And th- and think on that in terms of yourself. And so he gives in, in this chapter a uh, uh, idea that we are purposed for works. Even he commands us, and and he says bear fruit. And and this this if you've especially been in uh, in a, a gospel centered community like this one long enough maybe you start to that that kind of hits you the wrong way some of the things that Jesus is asking and telling and commanding starts to hit you the wrong way you said what about the gospel what about us being saved by works alone or by (laughs) (laughs) heresy alarm (laughs) what about the gospel what about us being saved by faith and not by works so that we cannot boast R.C. Sproul said it this way. I'll give you two quotes for free by R.C. Sproul. He says, although we are justified by faith apart from works, we are justified by faith unto works. This is my favorite. I read a little bit of R.C. Sproul in preparation for this. He said, being productive is not the invention of capitalism. It's the mandate of Christ. Being productive is not the invention of capitalism or of our Western society, but it's The mandate of Christ to be fruitful and multiply. So Jesus says, if you do nothing, you will be plucked, withered, and burned. And he also says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does that mean? That means we need Jesus. And what's the good news? He offers himself freely. Being judged on our fruit-bearing does not challenge the gospel or the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It helps us understand it better. In the same way that we need Jesus to escape eternal judgment and defeat sin, we desperately need him to fulfill what God has designed and purposed us to do, which is bear fruit. Knowing there is Nothing we can do to earn our salvation looks more like this, that the branches that bear fruit are saved and are pruned, and Jesus is the only way to bear fruit. He is the true vine. We cannot be the true vine. Jesus is, and here is the promise. Abide in him, and you will bear much fruit. You can only be saved by Jesus. You can only bear fruit by Jesus. So what does bearing fruit look like you might ask, is this, uh, is bearing fruit, is it, is it leading others to Christ? Is it, is it proclaiming the gospel to someone so that they might hear the good news? Is it making disciples, the mandate of Christ, be fruitful and multi- multiply, go make disciples of every nation? Is, it, is that what bearing fruit is? Or is it, is it the fruits of the Spirit that, that Paul talks about? Is it, is it having the fruits of the Spirit? Yes, absolutely, all of those things Watch the Spirit work out every single one of those things in your life. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. So where you find obedience, you find love. And where you find love, you find obedience. Look back to Psalm chapter 1. He says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. He, it doesn't say this person reluctantly obeys the law of the Lord. If this person knows the law of the Lord, his delight is in the law of the Lord. He loves, therefore he obeys. He obeys, therefore it's evident that he loves. So how much do, do I need to read my Bible, you ask? And Jesus says, remain in me, abide in me. And how much do I need to be praying, you ask? And he says, remain in me, abide in me. And how much do I need to be sharing the gospel with people who need to hear the gospel? And he says, remain in me, abide in me. Don't miss that. He's transforming our desires, not giving us a to-do list. This will bug the task-oriented people in the room. This is all, there, I'd say there's about two types of people in this room. I'm going to make that. There's, there's two types of people in this room. There, there's one type of person that says, what do I have to do, and the subtext is, so that I can accomplish it on my own and take the credit for it. right? What do I have to do so I have to, so I can accomplish it on my own. And then there's another type of people in this room. I'm not saying I'm walking over here, but I'm not saying it's like all you guys, just like this uh, image here. Uh, what do I, this, a second type of person is what do I have to do so that I can get away with doing the least amount as possible? I can give you stories of me being both of these in in my life, but but know that In thinking, what do I have to do so that I can accomplish it and take credit for it? Or what do I have to do so that I can do the least amount as possible? That tendency, that mindset, Jesus overturns both of those. When I was about seven or eight years old, I lived in a large family, uh, many siblings. I can't even remember how many siblings I had at that time. I have eight or seven now. And uh, it's a big family, small house, lots of mess. And so my mom in her wisdom developed a chore chart and plans. I think we went through a few different strategies of cleaning the house, but I think at this time it was zones. So different different kids had different zones in the house that they cleaned up. And uh, we would usually do that after school, before dinner, while my mom was making dinner. And so my zone was the living room, and I had to vacuum the living room was the last thing that I had to do. And I, like every good kid, absolutely did not want to do that. And so I was probably playing Legos or wood blocks or something like that at the time. And my mom walked by, and even though I know I need to do this, she reminds me, hey, Joe, you need to vacuum the living room. And so I'm like, well, this is not going to end well unless I vacuum the living room. So I went and I vacuumed the living room, and I went back to my Legos. And then later my mom walked by and like, Joe, you need to vacuum the living room. I said, Mom, I did vacuum the living room. And she looked at me, and she's like, ushered me into the living room and she said, and she pointed to the, I'll never forget this, she pointed to the the carpet and she said, vacuum with your eyes. I was like, what does that mean? But I knew, even as an eight-year-old, I knew exactly what that meant. I was vacuuming to get it done. I wasn't vacuuming that the carpet might be clean. Vacuum with your eyes. I think about that all the time. I did what I thought was necessary to get by the least amount as possible because I believed I knew what was best for me, which was playing Legos. I believed that the, the thing that was best for me was not vacuuming the living room but was playing with the Legos or whatever I was doing at the time. I was Lord of my desires. I knew what was best for me, and I acted accordingly. But hear this. Jesus establishes lordship, over his followers' desires by commanding this, abide in me. Don't miss that. Jesus saves and cleanses us by becoming Lord of our desires. Because he knows as lords of our own desires, we will become like wild grapes or fruitless branches that will soon wither, be cut off and burned. And so in love, he desires to become Lord of our desires. Abide in me not read your Bible three times a day because he is transforming our desires, not our habits or to-do lists. Jesus points us in a direction like every good leader. He he doesn't draw a line or give a quota. He charts a course and points in a direction. When I... Uh, Finished high school and was headed to college. I uh, had a really good job, so I wanted. I worked for a semester before starting school in January instead of in the fall. And uh, in the winter, in the thick of the winter, I was a plumber, and the um, business got really slow in the in the thick of the winter. And so, two months before I would have gone off to school, my boss came and talked to me, and he said, "Joe." I like you. You're a really good employee. I don't have any work. That's why you've been cleaning the shop for two weeks. And I'm going to have to let you go. And so uh, I I had two months before I went to school. I still wanted to save up more money. And so I went and I tried to find any job I could find. One job that I found was in this print shop. I wanted to possibly go into graphic design. So I went to the owner of this print shop and I was like, (laughs) Hey, can I can I do anything here? Anything, any job, any work you might have for me? I'm I'm handy at at not very many things, but I'll I can learn fast. And so he's like, okay, I can find work for you. Come here on Saturday, plan four hours, and and I'll find work for you. I showed up on Saturday, and they also printed this the newspaper of the town, and not not the um, the you know what you get in, in the mail or maybe on your porch where you have the. Um, all the ads and the coupons and the things that you stuff in there. Um, I usually throw those away, but Abby loves those, and it's (laughs) great. We save money. But anyway, some poor soul stuffed every single one of those things inside of each other. It's not a machine that does it. It's a a kid who just wants to make a couple bucks before going to college. (laughs) And so I showed up, and we were stuffing papers. He showed me the things. There was like, three other um, high school kids there, and then the owner of the company was doing it, too. And very quickly, I looked, and I recognized that I had a stack of completed, stuffed newspapers, and all these other kids had a stack of completed, stuffed newspapers. And then I looked at my boss's the, the owner of the company. I mean, he, he's the owner of the company. He has much more important things to do. His stack was twice as tall as everybody else's and I look I was like why How is he so much better than everybody else and so as a very competitive person who's not very good at many things but it's my curse competitive I was like all right I'm going I'm gonna be faster than this guy by the end of the month. I'm gonna be faster than him. So a couple weeks later I practiced. I worked on my technique. Like if you order it in a certain way, you lift it up and you slide one in and you slide it over, you lift the next one up and you slide it in. And you can do it in a very quick way that uh, it speeds things up. So I, I, I studied his technique. I worked on the speed and I got really good at it. And by the end of a month, I was a lot faster than I was when I started. And so I, I kept working on it, kept working on it. And at the end of the month, I went, and I was racing him, and he didn't even know it, and I was racing him. (laughs) And when we got done, his stack was still bigger than mine. I was like, come on, man. You don't even care about this. You're not even trying to go fast. Why was he so much faster and better at it than me? Because I was looking at the paper in front of me, and he was looking at the paper on every doorstep in the city. He had a vision for what was happening with the business. And he knew that it had to be done. So a natural response was, in the process, those things grew. And he was better at it because I was stuck on the paper. So don't get stuck on how much do I need to read my Bible? How much do I need to be praying? How much do I need to be being discipled by other people? Abide in Jesus. He points in a direction. He gives us, he charts a course He doesn't give us a quota to fill. And as you abide in Jesus, your delight will be to do those things. You'll naturally grow at those things. And so, because of who we are in Christ as branches and what that means for us, abide, this is what we are to do now. Love one another. If you ask the Holy Spirit to abide in Christ, guess what He'll probably command you to do? Love one another. There's probably uh, a lot of things that come to your mind when you think of loving, and and what that means for if you're single and you really want to be married. Maybe that means you you think of loving, and you think of that that perfect spouse that you're envisioning right now. Or maybe if you are uh, married and you really want to have kids, but you don't have kids yet, you think of loving, you think of that perfect baby that you're gonna have one day or fill in the blank, whatever you might be thinking of. But this is the example of love that he gives us. And this is also the command uh, for you married people and for people who will be married someday in marriage, especially you men, lay down your life. And so as a newly married man, this is something that I got really excited about, and I was like, I know what this is. I know this is something I can do, and this seems easy for you or for your wife at a time uh, to lay down your life for your wife. You think that, like, I think I'm a superhero, and when the bullet is headed towards her, I'm going to jump in front of it, and everybody's going to sing about me after I'm dead. (laughs) But after being married... I see what that's actually like. And maybe you see what that's actually like on a daily basis. Dying to yourself and the fleshly desires that would otherwise be there. Thinking of the things that would be her preference and making her happy instead of thinking of the things that would be her preference and make her happy. I'm sorry, thinking of the things that would be her preference and make her happy instead of trying to manipulate my own preference. And honoring her best when no one's looking and honoring her best when everyone is looking and it's not even flattering. Think of Jesus, if he had peers, what would his peers say about his betrothed behind his back? What do you think they would talk about? The per- his person that Jesus is engaged to, what-, what do you think his peers would say about him? What would they say about the infidelity and the serial adultery and the disrespecting and the vain pursuit of all of the things that satisfy her that aren't her husband-to-be? What would they say about Jesus' betrothed, and yet he died for her? Don't miss that. See that in Hosea chapters 1, 2, and 3, the story, this foretelling of what Jesus dying for his bride is like. What unappealing and unattractive love is that? It's not even, that doesn't even look good to the rest of the world, and that's the type of love that he calls so I, so I ask you, jot this down. What unappealing and unattractive and unconventional thing does laying down your life for those around you bring you to do? And what would they say about you? Just touch on that. That could be that's a that's another sermon and a half. But it's not a coincidence that he goes on to talk about the hatred of the world. And so. We see that because of who we are in Christ, which is branches, and what that means for us, abide. This is what we are to do now, that is love one another, and this will be the result. In chapter 14, we saw that we will inherit peace from Christ. He gives this to us at the end of chapter 14. You'll inherit peace from Christ. In this chapter... In this chapter, we see three more things Jesus' his followers will inherit from him, which is love, joy, and the hatred of the world. In verse 9, love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's another sermon. In verse 11, joy. I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Another sermon. Our joy is full in Christ, despite the circumstances. And in verse 19, the hatred of the world. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What is the cause of the hatred or the enmity or the hostility in the world? Well, one answer he explains in here is that Christians, followers, disciples of Jesus, are not of the world. He chose us out of it. So it it rejects what is not like it. Even to the extent that he said, "If you were of the world, they would accept you, but you are not. You're out of. I chose you out of the world." The second is that a Christian's master is Jesus. Our Lord is Jesus, not ourselves. And then the third reason he gives is because the world hates Jesus. That's the natural response. So on more than one occasion, I've had my pastor ask me this when I've like come to him, I, this situation is a difficult thing going on with another person that I have. And he says, do you need to apologize for the gospel or for Christ? If so, like don't apologize for, for that. But do you need to apologize because you were a jerk? All Christians are hated by the world, but not all hatred from the world is because of Christ. Think squares and rectangles. All squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares do you need to do they hate you because of christ or because you need to apologize for something and so what does this mean for us it means don't seek the hostility of the world but if you never experience it that should be a wake-up call that you're more likely worshiping the approval of the world rather than jesus a wake-up call that Jesus is not Lord of your desires. Look back to chapter 12 of John, the very end of the chapter, verse 43, says that uh, they, they were more impressed by the glory of man than the glory of God. Talks more on that. So now to wrap up, we've seen possibly the best the best good advice you could ever get abide in Jesus and so on a on a regular basis, you'll hear us talk like the Bible is not a book of good advice, it's a book of good news, a story that that tells us something that's true that we can rejoice in It's not just a book of good advice, things to do, things to not do, but in here we see this is. Possibly the best advice you could ever get because it results in bearing fruit, it results in glorifying God, and it results in eternal reward. This is good advice because it's founded deeply in good news. You remember this story in the beginning of the vineyard in Isaiah? It's flip forward from Isaiah chapter 5 two. Isaiah 27, we see the redemption of the vineyard, with the redemption of Israel, what is to come for the vineyard, God's plan. This is long before Jesus that this plan was set in place. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it, Night and day, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them and I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace of me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. What a beautiful picture compared to the last one. So how did this happen? How did this happen? How do we get there? How did we get from, from the, the vine dresser, God pouring down eternal judgment on this vineyard that was ruined and, and filled with wild grapes too? I water it, sing of it. I, I protect it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. And it's full of fruit. it fills the whole world with fruit. How did we get there? What happened? Who stood between the vine dresser and the wild, ruined vineyard? Who looked at the decaying vineyard in love? Who stopped it from being laid to waste? Who was slain in its place so that it might live? Who planted himself into the mess so that the life so that life might be found where there once was decay? Who is the one who can bear fruit? Who is the one who can glorify God, the Father, with His works? And now, who offers Himself to us freely so that we might also? And the answer, of course, is the vine, the true vine, Jesus. Such that our song becomes, In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. In every victory, Jesus is better. Than any comfort, better than any comfort, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. Our soul's declaring, and this becomes our song, that Jesus is better. Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we look to you now, the great vine dresser, the great and true vine Lord, we see who you are and who we have become because of you and our unworthiness of it. Lord, would you now melt our hearts? Would you now soften and transform our desires and become Lord of our desires so that we might abide in you and bear fruit? Thank you for your promise to love us and to lead us. Thank you for your promise that we will and can bear fruit with you. Lord, we confess that in our earthly, fleshly bodies, we tend towards a state of decay, and we tend towards a state of forgetfulness. So would you remind us, Lord, would you remind us of this good news? Would you plant this belief in us in a way that springs up Lord, would you help us to be planted by streams of water so that we are never dry, we're never thirsty for something, but we are always running and, and clinging to you for your word. Lord, give us a desire for your word, a desire for your truth, that it might be the meal that we crave, that it might be the water that we thirst for. Lord, fill us up with your glory that we might point others to you. Lord, help us to bear fruit. You are the only true vine, the only one that can do that. It is in your name that we pray and believe these things. Amen.